me just make a clarification about the uh, services over at First of Sterling Heights. On Tuesday, you don't have to come to the dinner. If you want to come to the concert, you're welcome to just come to that. That's at 7 o'clock. Uh, the dinner is $5 per person as well. That Everything else is no cost. There's also some teen activities that I mentioned earlier. So make sure you get a, a postcard so you know what's going on. And, and uh, just let me know if you plan to come to the dinner so that I can let them know. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 11 is the focus of our attention this evening. 1 Samuel chapter 11. How can Saul really be in a position to, to deliver Israel? How can he really lead Israel? He's a timid guy. He's fearful. He's not confident of his ability. He's not confident that the people are going to follow him. He's unsure of himself as a leader. And there are several people that agree with him because, do you remember the question at the end of chapter 10? Who, or how can this one, this man, deliver us? Well, the answer comes in chapter 11, and it's going to be this one can deliver them because he is God's appointed leader. Even though he is timid, he will deliver Israel because God will give him the power and the leadership through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly how God leads our church today. There are countless thousands of pastors, I'm sure, who look at their responsibilities that they are called to and ask with Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.16, who is adequate for such things? When, when any pastor, I think, looks out on the responsibilities that they have to lead a church and in their own abilities, they have to ask, who, can, who is possibly adequate for these things? How, how can I, as your pastor, properly feed you and lead you in a direction that is pleasing to God? How can I oversee the work of God in this place? How can I take the very words of God and try to simplify them in a way that adults can understand, let alone that kids can understand? Who is truly adequate for such things? And if a pastor's lack of confidence is not enough, people, I think, in many cases, look at the pastor and ask a very similar question to what they asked of Saul. How can this one be the one that leads us? How can this one deliver us? And the answer is the same as it was for Israel. And it is that any leader can only lead and deliver God's people through the power of the Spirit. Now, I know I'm making some parallels here between pastors and Saul. And, and we have to recognize that Saul's not a pastor of a church. And I'm going to mention again that Saul is, has much to be desired in terms of his character and his standing before God. And we'll see that more as his life unfolds. But I think this story is an illustration, this one in chapter 11, is an illustration of what God can do by His strength when He wants to bring unity and deliverance to His people. God can do it through whomever is in authority. God can do it. And so that's what we'll see here in chapter 11. So let me read our text for us, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make, a, I will make it with you on this one condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you, and thus I will make it a reproach on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days that we may send messengers throughout the territory, ter, territory of Israel 
Then if there's no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, What's the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. He numbered them in Bezek, and the sons of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. And then the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. The next morning Saul put the people in three companies, and they came in the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Sometimes God uses desperation to show His people whom He has chosen as their leader. God can do by His strength great things. He can bring unity and deliverance through His leader. You see, three points here in, in this passage. Number one, God allows His people to be put into a position of desperation. God allows His people to be put into a position of desperation, verses 1-4. through four. Nahash is a snake of a man. That's what his name means, snake. He, was a, he, he just loved to terrorize Israel. And, and that's why he says here in verse 2, I will, make it, I will make this covenant with you on one condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every single one of you so that it will be a reproach. You will be a reproach among all Israel. I want to make a laughing stock of you and show Israel what I really think of it. Jabesh Gilead is a region just east of the Jordan River. It's about 20 miles uh, south of the Sea of Galilee. Nahash was from Ammon, so he's farther east of the Jordan River. He's just south and east, really, of Gilead. And the Ammonites were descendants of the incestuous union of Lot and his daughter. And so they are wicked people at the very core, and they would serve to be thorns in the side of Israel for centuries. And Nahash is, the leader of, is, is one of the leaders, apparently, of this group of people, the Ammonites. This, this group of people would, would continue to terrorize Israel and try to overcome the territory. They, they saw Israel as a weak link, as a weak uh, people group, and so this is their opportunity to gain more land. They're down here in the southeast of 
of Gilead. And so, hey, if we can just take this weak group, then, then it will be uh, more land for us. And the Ammonites are about as barbaric as they come. In Amos chapter 1, verse 13, they are judged by God for ripping open the wombs of pregnant women. And, and this, that, that, act, that case probably takes, takes, uh, happens later on in the history of where we're at in terms of, of chronology. But in this case, Nahash terrorizes this small group of people by trying to conquer their territory. But instead of just capturing their land and just sending the people away, he wants to make, he wants to make a, an object lesson of them. He, he wants to, to make Jabesh Gilead the poster children for the people that he likes to, to beat up on. And so he, he planned to either completely annihilate them or to humiliate them um, beyond reproach. And Jabesh pleads with Nahash to spare them. Please don't take our lives. And so he says, okay, if I'll either take your life or they say, why don't we make a covenant with you? We'll, we'll be your vassals. We'll be your servants. And he says, okay, you can be my servant, but, but here's what we're going to do. If you're going to be my servant, you can only have one eye. You can only have your left eye. I'm going to take out your right eye. And the reason for that is, is so that they would still be able to farm for him, that he, they would still be able to do the servant-type work, but they wouldn't be able to fight against him. The right eye was the one that was the dominant eye and the one that would be used for hunting and for battle. Uh, they would take their shield and their left arm and they would have their sword in their right arm and so they would cover up the shield really with their left... They would cover up their left eye with, with their shield. So they really didn't use their left eye as much in, in battle. So if you take out the person's right eye, then they really are going to be ineffective Taking out an eye, by the way, just reduces a person's peripheral vision as well as their depth perception uh, just greatly. And it makes them very weak when it comes to battle. But they could still do their chores around the farm. And that would be helpful for Nahash. So Nahash wants to make an object lesson out of them. And so he says, you know what, I'll agree to it. I will agree to taking you captive, making you my servants, but I'm going to take your right eye. And so, instead of making a choice right on the spot, the people of Israel, Jabesh Gilead, decide, why don't we ask him if we can have a little bit of time so that we can go throughout our land and ask for help? If we can be delivered by some of the other people from the rest of Israel, you know, across the Jordan River, then, then we'll do that. We'll bring them back with us and we'll defeat the Ammonites together. But if not, it's better than being killed. We'd rather lose an eye than to be killed altogether. And Nahash recognized that this was a potential threat to him. That if they went back and got their brothers from across the Jordan River, on the west side of the Jordan River, and all to the north and south, that they would be able to bring back potentially a huge group of people to fight against him and his people. But he was willing to take that risk because he felt he was so strong. He felt Israel was really weak and that Israel's military power was not going to be enough to defeat him. And notice he only gives them seven days. Verse 3, um, or actually Jabesh asks for seven days. Let us alone for seven days that we may send messengers to see if we can get some help, in other words. And, and I think the other thing that Nahash also had in his favor was that message carrying took a long time in the ancient Near East, right? Long before the days of, of uh, overnight packages, you know, you can send something overnight. 
um, and, and have messages maybe even now we can have messages delivered just instantly with, with all sorts of text messaging and email and all sorts of things. But, but now, but back then, it, was, it would take days, right? If you wanted to send a message throughout all of Israel, it's going to take several days for the, the message to get there. Then the people had to make a quick decision and get back before the seven days were up because if the seven days were up and they were, hadn't made their choice, then the Ammonites were going to kill them. And so Jabesh, Jabesh asked for the time they get it. In verse 4, they used this week-long delay to call for help. And the first people that they inform across the river are the Gibeonites. Look at verse 4. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. So if you picture here, you got Jabesh Gilead on the east side of the Jordan. Across the river is, is Gibeah. And Gibeah is about 40 miles west of Jabesh. And it's important in this story because it also is the hometown of Saul. We've already been introduced to Saul. We've seen some of his timidity and so on. But, but now we see that they, they go to send this message, these messengers, over to Saul's hometown. And, and it just happens to be the location of where Saul established his kingdom. Now, if you think about it, 40 miles would take at least a day or two to travel depending on their mode of travel. You know, if they're walking, probably a couple days. If they're using some kind of animal, then maybe just a day. But, but whatever the case, they only have seven days. They have to get this message over there quick and they need to get a response so they can get back to, to Jabesh so that Jabesh can get back to the Ammonites and tell them what they've decided. Well, Gibeah was also the place, in terms of biblical history, where the Benjamites raped and murdered the Levite's wife that, that seems to be keep coming up over and over again in this passage or in this in this text in First Samuel. That's the same place that it happened in Gibeah. And if you think about it in terms of Jabesh's situation, they're not really in a position to ask for help. Uh, during that time when that Levite's wife was raped and murdered, they were one of the few groups, actually the only group, that didn't come and help and, and go after Benjamin. They were the only group. And as a result, the rest of Israel said, you are going to die because you didn't come and, and, and uh, be there at a time when Israel needed you. And so they actually killed all of the Jabesh Gileadites, all the men. The only thing they left were 400 virgins. And so notice the response of the people when they find out the news at the end of verse 4. This is Gibeah. This is, uh, Gibeah, Gibeah said, all the people, when they find out about Jabesh Gilead, they lifted up their voices and wept. So even though Jabesh, okay, you need to think, think about this in terms of where Jabesh is. Jabesh is this one over here on the east side of the Jordan. They're the ones who didn't come and help the, and go after the Benjamites back in Judges 19 to 21. And, and so they got wiped out except for the 400 virgins. They're not in a position to come and ask for help. They're, they're, they're basically uh, draft dodgers, we could say. And, and yet, even though most of Jabesh had been wiped out, Israel did spare 400 virgins, and those 400 virgins would later marry the Benjamites. Remember what happened in that battle? All of Israel comes up against Benjamin and says, you raped and murdered this woman... Now we're coming after you, so send out the men so we can take, up, take them out. 
And Benjamin, the Benjamites said, no, we're not doing that. And so, fine, we're going to go to battle. And they went to battle. And Israel had a, an amazing tactic. They did an ambush on them and ended up killing all of them except for uh, a few hundred of the Benjamites. And they were only men. They had killed all the women and children. The only thing they had left. So now you have, on this side of the Jordan, you have the Benjamites who did an evil act just not a few centuries earlier, an evil act on this Levite woman, and then lost most of their people in battle. They only had a few hundred men left. And then you have the Jabesh Gileads who didn't come and help in that battle. And all you have left is a few hundred women. And do you know what happens? How Israel says, you know, we don't really want them to die out. They're, they're, they're going to become extinct if they don't have any women to marry. And we can't let them marry people outside of our tribe, that is, outside of the tribe of Israel, uh, outside of the tribes of Israel. And so why don't we take these 400 virgins that are left over here in Jabesh Gilead and allow them to be married to the Benjamites? And so this is the seven brides for seven brothers thing that happened, right? The guys, they, the, all the Jabesh Gileadites come to this party, this festival, and while they're there, the men come and they steal them off and take them away. And if any of the fathers had a problem, then what, what could they say? Because they never came to battle. So, so now do you see the relationship here between Jabesh Gilead and the Benjamites, Gibeah? That's why at the end of verse 4, they weep when they find out. You see, these are close relatives. Likely what happened is when these two groups married, some of them went back to, to Jabesh Gilead some of them went back to Benjamin, the Gibeah area. And so you have this kind of combining of groups and one is in one area and one in the other, but they love each other. They are close friends, close relatives. But what could the Benjamites possibly do? I mean, they didn't have much time. They only had five or six more days before the Ammonites were going to attack. And, and what could they possibly do? So number one... God allows His people to be put into a position of desperation. And that's exactly where Jabesh Gilead is. Number two, God grants victory for His people through His appointed leader. God grants victory for His people through His appointed leader. Verses 5-11. through 11. In verse 5, Saul hears the news. He was coming in from the field behind the oxen and he said, what's the matter with these people that they weep? Now, isn't this amazing? Saul has already been anointed as king in chapter 10. And then he was acknowledged as king by the casting of lots. We saw that at the end of chapter 10. And where does he go? He goes back home. He doesn't know how to establish a kingdom. He has some valiant warriors follow him, but he doesn't really know what to do. And so he goes back to, we find him here in verse 5, back to farming. Right? He, just, he doesn't know. He doesn't know how to just go in and enter the Oval Office and start doing business. Instead, he goes back to his old way of life. And yet, he comes in from the field after doing some farming and he hears that people are crying and he says, why are they crying? Now, what you need to know about Saul is he's just a couple generations removed from this intermarrying of these two tribes, Jabesh Gilead and really Jabesh Gilead is just a region but of, I think it's Manasseh, but but Jabesh Gilead, sorry, Jabesh Gilead over here, and the Benjamites. So Saul is likely a descendant of that of the, those two groups of people. And so when he hears about that, he recognizes that this is family who is in trouble. And I think that's one of the reasons that he responded as he did. Notice at the end of verse six, 
When he heard these words, he became very angry. All these events in verses 1-5 through sets the stage for God to work in a powerful way. And in verse 6, we see really the center of the text. And not in terms of words or in terms of verses necessarily, but, but in terms of what God is doing. Everything leads up to this point in the text, verse 6, and then everything comes out from that at the end of the chapter. So verse 6, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul mightily. These words should remind us of when the Spirit of the Lord came upon someone else mightily in the book of Judges. Who was it? It was Samson. Samson was not dissimilar from Saul. And here, God's Spirit is coming on Saul just as it did with Samson. Now, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon an Old Testament leader, it's not talking about salvation. And and again, I want to be clear that I don't think Saul was ever saved. And the reason that I think that is because the Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of the Lord. It is the Holy Spirit. But when He comes on Saul... Here, he's also taken away from him in chapter 16, verse 14. And the Spirit goes, departs from Saul and goes on to David. That cannot be talking about salvation. The Spirit of the Lord does not work that way in salvation. We know that from the rest of Scripture. We even know that from the Old Testament. And so, this has to be something else. And what I would argue, and I've argued many times, or at least stated it this way, is that this is referring to what what theologians call the theocratic anointing. Theocratic just means God-appointed ruler. Anointing just means that God's Spirit comes on that person in order to give them the ability to carry out the administration of God's work. Whether they are a Christian or not, or a believer or not. Okay, Christian is on this side of the cross. Okay, but, but whether they're a believer or not. So, for example, the Spirit came on Moses. That was the first time we have any record of the Spirit coming on someone in that way, that was Moses. He was the first theocratic ruler. That is, God-appointed ruler over His people. And then it came on the 70 elders following Moses. And then on Joshua. And then on the judges. You see the Spirit coming on them powerfully in many cases. <clears throat> and now on Saul. You'll see it on David. You'll see it on kings. Wicked and good after David as well. Okay, so this doesn't simply mean that Saul is now just going to be a really good warrior. That, that, is, uh, that is, I think, part of it. But I think it also has to do with strategy. That he has the, the ability now to know what God would want him to do. How to administer his troops for the sake of victory. And God's going to give him that ability, ability through the power of His Spirit. And so the first thing that Saul does after he gets angry is he calls for help. He gathers the troops. And notice what this theocratic anointing causes Saul to do in verse 7. He took a yoke of oxen, so two oxen, and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. So you want to protect your own flock, or your own uh, own, uh, oxen, your own livestock? You want to protect them? Then you better come out and fight, because this is not just a Jabesh-Gilead problem. This is not just a Benjamite problem. This is an all-Israel problem. And you need to be here. So he takes, uh, he, he takes a lesson from what the Levite did with the woman. 
right? And his wife that had died. He cut her up and, and sent a note with her, each of the, the body parts to the 12 tribes of Israel. And here, Saul does something very similar, except he does it with oxen. He cuts them up and he attaches a note to it and says, if you don't come out and fight for Jabesh, then we're going to cut up your ox just like we did this ox that is, has been delivered to you. Now, Saul's messengers would have had to be to go pretty fast because there wasn't much time. There's already been a couple days that have passed, likely. And, and traveling to the farthest parts of Israel would have taken another day or two. So, remember, they only have seven days. And then they also have to make the decision and return. Whatever the case, the message is received and responded to well, verses 8 and 9. We have 300,000 from Israel and 30,000 from Judah. And the messengers come back to... So now, just think of them all congregating in Gibeah, Benjamin, the Benjamite area. And these messengers now go back to Jabesh Gilead and they say, here's the news. The news is, verse 10, um, I'm sorry, the end of verse 9, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, so the messengers are taking this word back from Saul, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So they get the word back. And so now Jabesh has to go back to Nahash. Nahash is, you remember, the Ammonite leader. And he wants to go back and tell Nahash that, hey, we've, we've made a decision. We're going to come out and do whatever you want us to do. A little bit of deception going on there. But, but Nahash is thinking, tomorrow is going to be time for some eye extractions. right? But, but Jahash knew that they were going to have victory because God's man was on their side. And in verse 11, I think we also are reminded about what happens in Judges because Saul takes a page out of Gideon's playbook here. Remember, Gideon took his small group of people and he broke them up into th- broke them up into three groups. And then they came at the towards the end of the evening when it was starting to get dark, and they had all the the torches underneath the the clay pots and they broke the pots and it sounded like there were a lot of people and there was a lot of confusion going on among the Philistines. And and uh, next thing you know, they're all dead. And, and so Saul takes a page out of Gideon's playbook by doing something very similar. He takes these 330,000 troops and splits them into three groups. And then instead of going late at night, he goes early in the morning. That's what we see in verse 11 during the morning watch. That's between 2 and 6 a.m. So sometime before it had gotten light, while people are still in the deepest part of their sleep, um, they come into the camp and they start just tearing the Ammonites apart. And they fought from early morning, we're told in verse 11, until the heat of the day, probably around noon or, or a little bit later. So God brings about desperation or He allows desperation to take place in His people. And then number two, God grants victory through His appointed leader. And then finally, number three, God's victory strengthens the people's confidence in God's man. God's victory strengthens the people's confidence in God's man. After the victory, you have these people, some overzealous overzealous supporters of Saul saying in verse 12, you know, you remember those worthless men who said, how can this one deliver us? Do you remember those worthless men, Saul? Uh, What should we do with them? Should we kill them? But, But notice they actually don't say this to Saul. In verse 12, they actually say it to whom? To Samuel. And 
And so they're saying to they they still see Samuel some way has some leadership, maybe the the priority type of leader um, over the people of Israel. And so they say to Samuel, "Do you want us to kill these guys? These worthless guys who are not following the king." But whatever the case, Saul apparently overhears or learns of the request in verse 13, and he says, "No, this is not going to be about dividing our people. This is about unity." This is about victory. This is actually about God. And and this is an amazing response from Saul early on in his ministry as king. Look at what he says here in verse 13. But Saul said, Not one man shall be put to death this day. For today, notice, he doesn't say, I have the victory. I accomplished the deliverance. Samuel did it. He says, The Lord has done it. The Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Now, this is important because Israel was not delivered because of their king, but because of their God. God's Spirit came upon Saul in verse 6 and caused him to have the wisdom to lead. And this is the same way that God works today. It's not by might. It's not by power. Zechariah 14.6 But it's by My Spirit, says the Lord. Saul understood this early on in his leadership as king, and he wanted the people to know this as well. He wanted their focus to be in the right place. There's much that we're going to say as we go through the life of Saul about how a person can start well and not finish well. Saul is a great example of that. He starts well here. He he doesn't trust in himself. He's not confident in his own abilities. And and here it seems like he's he's putting the focus on God, but that will quickly shift in the next few stories. Well, Samuel leads the people back to Gilgal in verses 14 and 15. Notice why he leads them there. Verse 14, Samuel said to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. Now think about that for a second. Why would a kingdom need to be renewed? It would seem to make more sense to say, Let's go to Gilgal to establish this new kingdom. After all, we have our first king of Israel, don't we? And yet, what Samuel says is, let's go and renew our, the kingdom. And if we think about it carefully, we have to recognize that this king, King Saul, is not Israel's first king. God had been their king, wasn't He? In other words, what Samuel is saying is that the kingdom that needed to be renewed was not Saul's kingdom. Because Saul never had a kingdom. It was God's kingdom. Samuel wanted to make it clear that God was still their ultimate king, their ruler, and that He was to be obeyed. Saul was simply a representative. God was the one to be obeyed. In verse 15, Saul is confirmed as Israel's king in Gilgal. So all the people went there and they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So Saul had been anointed king in chapter 10, verse 1. He had been acknowledged publicly through the casting of lots in chapter 10, verse 21. But now we have the official coronation. The people actually recognize him as king. Before he was truly the king, he alone had that title. But he doesn't really get acknowledged as king until after he defeats the Ammonites. And that's why I say that God uses this victory to strengthen the people's confidence in his leader. 
And I think this victory was important for more than just the people. I think it was also necessary to confirm his position to Saul himself, that Saul needed to recognize that God was going to work through him. Do you remember Saul's response when he was anointed? What happened when he went back to his home at the end of chapter or in the middle of, of chapter 10? Did he tell anybody about it? He told no one when he got back home. And, the, and then do you remember what happened when the lot was chosen at Mizpah and it, and it came to Saul's name? Where was Saul? He was hiding in the baggage. So, so I think God is doing more than just for the people. Hey, this is, this is my king. This is the one that I've chosen. But I think He was also showing to Saul himself that, Saul, you are the king that I have chosen. And you simply need to follow me, obey me, get the people to do the same. Well, we have a great start for Saul. They're happy that he's king. He's happy to be their king. He's acknowledging God for the victory. They're sacrificing to the Lord at the end of verse 15. And, and overall, we see Israel in a good and unifying place. So let me just um, finish with one thought here this evening, and that is this. Sometimes God brings unity by creating a common enemy. Sometimes God brings about unity by creating a common enemy. Verse 7, when they recognized that, that this man, this man Nahash and his people were coming up against some of their own brothers, all of Israel came and, and was willing to, to stand up and fight for him. You see, Israel's at a time of desperation. And being in that kind of position is what often causes people to turn to God for help and to turn to each other for help. And it seems to me that Israel is somewhat divided. Did you notice in verse 8 that when there were totals given for the number of people that would come out to war, that it was split up between Israel and Judah? Now, if you think about it in terms of history, it doesn't make sense that, that those would be listed there because Israel and Judah are not really separated, divided until when? After the reign of Solomon, right? It was in the time of Jeroboam that the, 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 the kingdoms would be divided. And, and yet, the, the author of Scripture here recognizes that there is some inbuilt division that's starting to take place. That there's already some division that's going on between the, the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah. And yet, here... God is using this challenging and somewhat divisive situation to bring unity to a nation under one king, one prophet, and one God. And I think we can learn something from that for our own church. That God sometimes brings unity in His church that way. That is, that, that He brings unity by creating a common enemy. You know, we sometimes can fill up our time with so much bickering over issues that have little eternal importance. And then God comes along and reveals a common enemy, a, a greater enemy that strengthens our unity. And so while we're, work, we're busy working to fight against that common enemy, what we don't realize is that God is using it to, to help to, to help bring us together 
in a way that we otherwise wouldn't have come. So that we can start to shed some of these temporary squabbles that we have. You know, we have some of these pet issues that we want to get solved. And then when this common enemy comes along, it reminds me of of what happened to our country in 2001. There's all sorts of bickering going on on both sides of the aisle on, on who's right and who's wrong. And then you have the Taliban, Al-Qaeda come in and do this disastrous act, this, this terrible act on our country. And what happens? I mean, people aren't divided anymore. We, we, we rally around our hatred, our stand against a common enemy. That's where Israel is at this time. Now, unfortunately for Israel, it won't stay that way forever. Unfortunately, Saul will not remain committed to the Lord and His purposes But we have a really good start to Saul's kingdom, don't we? So how is it that we strengthen our unity in our church? Do we pray for a common enemy? Do we pray for a great disaster to come so that we can all have a a proper focus? And the truth is is that that unity is not something that we create. We, We don't have to create unity within the church. In fact, the Spirit is the one who creates the unity within the body of Christ. But we do have a command in Ephesians 4, 3, To do what? To maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what the Spirit has automatically or or has already put together with regard to unity in our church, we need to uphold that. We have a responsibility to build on what the Spirit has already created. And sometimes, sadly, I think we let our individual preferences and unbiblical dreams get in the way of peace within the church. When God is saying, listen, I've established unity to some degree. Now you build on that through the power of the Spirit. What do you think God is doing in this place to strengthen our unity? What is God doing here to strengthen our unity? We must not miss the point. The Spirit is what we need most of all. We need to be rescued from our situation. It's not a congregation that we need or a leader or a pastor It's ultimately going to do the work. It's ultimately God's Spirit who brings deliverance. Because without God, we can do nothing. And when the Spirit brings that unity and bolsters up our unity around sometimes a common enemy, sometimes just around us understanding the Word properly and starting to get rid of some of these temporary squabbles, in the end, God is the one who gets the glory. And that's the way it ought to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and for how it instructs us and reminds us of our place within Your program. Lord, we, we see ourselves as vital to the work that You're doing, but we also see ourselves as, as um, dependent upon You and upon Your Spirit. And so, Lord, strengthen us in the, the task that we have. Lord, help us not to be given over to temporary and bickering over temporal issues, but to find for ourselves um, a common unity in the spirit that we have and to, to fight against the great evils that are out there and that are opposing the work that You are doing here in this place. And Lord, sometimes those evils come from within our midst when when we have false teachers rise up and, and we need to to put them out of our midst where we need to remove them. Sometimes it happens through 
Um, people who want to cause division, we are compelled to remove them from this place. Other times it comes from outside of us that there are groups or, or people who are trying to do harm to the work that you're doing here. Lord, help us to stand together as a, a people who have been called out for your namesake and to be willing to fight not with swords or with spears or guns, but, but with uh, the Word that you have given. Lord, help us to have the strength to stand up and, and hold fast to the doctrine that has been handed down to us by the apostles through the preserved Word that You've given. Lord, we, we want to, to be soldiers in Your army. We want to uphold the name of Jesus Christ and we want to uphold the name of this church as it represents Christ. We believe it does. And so help us to do this in the power of the Spirit. For it's not by our might, it's not by our power, but it is by Your Spirit. And that's what You say. We, we believe it and we hold to it. And we want to live that way. So help us in Jesus' name. Amen.